0: Hey, White next, listener, I've got something special for you today while we all catch our breath over the holidays. It is an episode of One Year, one of my favorite Slate podcasts, which looks at the people and struggles that changed America one year at a time. Their latest season goes all the way back to 1942, when World War II was raging. It turns out six months after Pearl Harbor, Japan launched another attack on the U.S. This time, Axis forces actually invaded— turning some Alaskan islands into a battleground. The U.S. military claimed it was protecting indigenous Alaskans by forcibly moving them. The real story is darker than that. We're going to be back with new episodes of What Next next week. In the meantime, I hope you will subscribe to One Year wherever you listen. Now, here's host Josh Levine with the episode When the Internment Came to Alaska.
1: Gertrude Savarni was raised on the Aleutian Islands, off the Alaskan mainland. She's still there today, in the tiny city of Unalaska. She lives in the house her parents bought in 1934. That's a long time ago.
2: (laughs) Back then we were very busy subsisting, gathering berries, digging clams, fishing. I had a very happy
1: childhood. Gert is 92 now. When she was growing up back in the 30s, there were just 300 people in Unalaska. About half were white, including Gert's father. The other half were native Alaskans, the people known as the Ununga. Gert's mother was Ununga.
2: My mom always talked to us about our culture and the way we lived, and she taught us quite a bit about surviving
1: out here. Survival in remote Unalaska meant knowing how to cure fish and how to make it through the winters.
2: And actually, it's not that cold here. Our problem was the wind and the storms.
1: The day Gert and I spoke, the wind was gusting outside her house at 60 miles per hour. The Unangak have persevered through those kinds of harsh conditions for thousands of years. But on the morning of June 3rd, 1942, survival meant something very different.
2: I woke up and I heard all this yelling and shouting out in the kitchen. And my mother come in and she says, get your clothes on. Get the kids dressed. We're being attacked. We've got to get out of here.
1: The attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941 had launched the country into World War II, but Hawaii wasn't the only American territory that got bombed during the war. In 1942, the Japanese launched another attack on the United States. This one came in the Aleutian Islands. The U.S. scrambled to defend itself. It seemed like the whole West Coast was now under threat. But what the country did next, in the name of protecting Alaska's indigenous people, is a shameful chapter of the war, and it's one the nation has never fully reckoned with. The story of the Ununguk is not in most U.S. history textbooks, and it rarely gets mentioned in documentaries about World War II. But 80 years later, there are people who remember firsthand what happened. People like Gert Savarney, who are still here to tell their stories so their fellow Americans know the real history of the war in the Aleutian Islands. This is one year, 1942, when internment came to Alaska. The Aleutian Islands stretch southwest of Alaska for more than a 1,000 miles. They look like a rocky tail in the northern Pacific Ocean. Or, if you're feeling poetic, like a path to the end of the world. The islands are desolate but beautiful, one of the best spots on Earth for birdwatching, so long as you don't mind that there aren't any trees. Riptides, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions are a looming risk. But the Anangak felt comfortable there even if that meant they were entirely on their own. Sometimes the
4: people that lived there would go for years without a visit from a priest.
1: Rachel Mason is a cultural anthropologist for the National Park Service, based in Alaska. They
4: were quite isolated. It was not uncommon for someone never to have left the Aleutian Islands, never go to the mainland of Alaska.
1: The unanga did have company on the Aleutians starting in the mid-1700s. That's when the Russians came, lured in by the lucrative trade in sea otter furs. The Russians weren't very competent hunters, and they subjugated
4: the Unangak population because they were so much better hunters and forced them to hunt for them. And the Russian presence had a devastating effect on Unangak people.
1: The Unangak died in enormous numbers from disease, forced labor, and Russian violence. In 50 years, the indigenous population plummeted an estimated 80% to just 2,500 people. And then, after all that destruction, Russia picked up and left. The colony wasn't very
4: profitable for the Russians, and they were willing to sell it to the Americans. And that's what happened in 1867.
1: Why did the United States want it in the first place? I think they saw it as a land of opportunity, there were a lot of
4: entrepreneurs who arrived wanting to take advantage of the resources
1: to be harvested. Gold prospectors flooded in after the U.S. took over, but the government mostly ignored Alaska and its people. When Gert Savarney was a kid in the 1930s, the local hospital was severely understaffed, and the school only went to the 8th grade. We didn't have high school.
2: We had teachers from usually down the states, Unfortunately, they really never encouraged learning about our culture when I was a child.
1: That neglect also extended to the island's defenses. As of 1940, the military didn't have much of a footprint in Alaska. Given that the Aleutian Islands were the closest U.S. territory to Japan, that started to look like a major problem. And so, very quickly, hundreds of construction workers descended on the city of Unalaska. They got to work on building a military hub at the port of Dutch Harbor, one that could protect the Aleutians from anything the Axis might send their way.
2: They were building barracks, quonset huts, bunkers, and gun emplacements. In fact, they built one right outside our house here. I mean, everything was changed.
1: Part of that changed landscape was a barbed wire fence. That barrier restricted the Anungans' movements, and kept them away from their traditional fishing grounds. These new visitors from the continental US were acting like they owned the place. And in a very real sense, they did. Especially after Pearl Harbor, nothing felt more important than protecting the nation from another attack. Unalaska was now a military town.
2: We had soldiers practically outside of our door. I remember the Southern accents Louisiana and Alabama, they were standing watch in this bunker, watching out in the ocean here to see, you know, if there's any action out there.
1: The action finally came just before 6 a.m. on the morning of June 3rd, 1942. At first, Gert's father and brother thought they were hearing American troops take target practice. But this was not a drill. Bombs were falling on Alaska.
0: The entire West Coast is on the alert
2: after the two raid on Dutch Harbor in Alaska. More submarine activity is reported from the
1: Southwest Pacific. The military police showed up at Gert's family's house and told them they needed to get to safety. We were taken up into the hills and the
2: MPs told us to spread out and get into places where we wouldn't be seen from the air.
1: Gert was 12 years old and a middle child She sat in the rain and cold, looking after her younger sister.
2: I remember just to keep Harriet quiet, I made little dolls and stuff out of the leaves and twigs. We were all frightened, of course.
1: The first Japanese bombing run that day killed 25 people. American fighter planes scrambled to get there, but they arrived too late.
2: That night, they had sirens going off every once in a while, and every time there was a siren that went off, we we had to run to the creek because they had bomb shelters there. They were just holes dug in the creek bank, so we spent the night there. There was no beds or anything.
4: We just sat in the ground. The Pacific coast of North America, from Alaska to the Panama Canal, is on the lookout today for further Japanese attacks against this continent.
1: I think the next night was worse. On the second day of the attack... Japanese bombs hit a gun emplacement, a warehouse, and a ship being used as a barracks.
2: They bombed the oil tanks over there, and that was very loud and scary. It was, it was frightening.
1: All told, on June 3rd and 4th, the Japanese destroyed 14 U.S. aircraft. A total of 43 Americans were killed, including one civilian. 50 more were wounded. The damage to Dutch Harbor was only a small fraction of what Japan had inflicted in Hawaii. But this felt like a potentially devastating escalation.
4: Whether these raids portend 10 more severe blows is a matter for speculation. But at any rate, military authorities are taking no chances.
1: If Japan captured the Aleutian Islands, they'd have a base to launch attacks on major American cities. Places like Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. The entire West Coast was panicked at the thought of a Japanese invasion. And in June 1942, that invasion happened.
2: Everyone here is wondering about that Japanese landing on the very tip end of those stepping stones called the Aleutian Islands.
1: The target was the island of Attu. Attu is nearly 350 square miles, and it's about halfway between Tokyo and the Alaskan capital of Juneau. In 1942... It was home to 45 indigenous Alaskans and one white couple. On June 7th, six months to the day after Pearl Harbor, more than 1,000 Japanese soldiers came ashore in Attu. It was a Sunday and everyone was at church. When the service ended, they heard a sound they didn't recognize. Machine gun fire. The white man who lived on Attu was shot in the head and killed. The other 46 residents were taken hostage No U.S. territory had been occupied by a foreign invader since the War of 1812. But now, Axis troops were on American soil, and American citizens had been forced from their homes and become prisoners of war. Japan now looked poised to strike up and down the Aleutian chain. The island of Atka might be the next to fall into enemy hands. But the Allies took a drastic step to make sure that didn't happen. The village of Atka was
4: burned by the American military. It was burned so that the Japanese would not use the houses for facilities.
1: The Unungans who lived there watched their village go up in flames. Soon, they'd be evacuated from the island entirely. Word would spread quickly throughout the Aleutians. The government had issued orders. This was now a combat zone and the Ununguk would need to be removed for their own safety.
2: I heard it from my parents. By then, they were informing all the people in town that they were going to have to leave the next day.
1: Other Unungan communities were given even less time. In the case of the Pribilofs, they had only
4: an hour of warning. The ship arrived while they were playing a baseball game, and they had to stop the baseball game so there was no time to pack up their houses, pack up their possessions. They had to be ready to
1: go and leave. The Ununguk had to leave behind the icons from their churches and their family pets. They were only supposed to bring one suitcase apiece. Gert's mother packed all that she could fit.
2: She had just the bare essentials, a few pots and a few sheets, and blankets and stuff like that.
1: Those would be the only remnants of home for Gert, her mother, and three of her siblings. One of Gert's brothers was allowed to stay because he worked for a military contractor. And Gert's father stayed back, too, as Unalaska's postmaster, an essential worker in 1942. But that wasn't the only reason he got to remain at home.
2: My father did not have to leave because he was white, because they said that anyone with an eighth of Unungan blood, they had to leave.
1: Nearly 900 people were loaded onto ships pointed away from the Aleutian Islands. More than 100 of them came from Gert's community. When they pulled away from the shore, they looked back one last time to see what they were leaving behind.
2: It was a nice sunny day. And uh, as we were going out the harbor, I saw my dad and brother out here. And they were waving, waving. Nobody knew what was going to happen. They didn't know how long we were going to be gone or if we were coming back.
1: Let's take a quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Discover.
1: When Unalaska got bombed in June 1942, Gert Savarney had been forced to hide and to sleep in a dirt hole that doubled as a bomb shelter. Now, at 12 years old, she'd been corralled onto a ship and yanked away from the only place she'd ever lived. No one from Unalaska had any idea where they would land. And the people in charge of this mass evacuation? They didn't really know either.
2: All this time, even when we were on our way, they did not know where they were taking us. And it was such a
1: jungled-up mess. It was very ill-planned. Rachel Mason of the National Park Service.
4: There's not a lot of decision-making beforehand about where
1: all these people are going to go. The U.S. military and the Department of the Interior eventually settled on sending the Unungans to southeast Alaska, to the region known as the Alaskan Panhandle. The Panhandle and the Aleutian Islands were technically part of the same territory. But when the Unungan people caught sight of their new landing spot, it seemed like a whole other planet. One thing that was
4: very frightening to some of the older people was to find that there were heavy forests. They were used to the treeless islands of the Aleutians, and so they were very intimidated and didn't like the trees at all. The trees,
2: the trees were the main thing. And th- there, there were just so many, like the frogs and raspberry bushes. We never saw raspberry bushes before. There were so many things that were new to us.
1: The forest Gert marveled at was on Wrangell Island. That was home of the Wrangell Institute, a boarding school for Native Alaskans.
2: When we arrived there, they checked our heads for lice. And my mother had to put her kids in these cold showers because there wasn't enough water. It was cold, and the food was awful.
1: The Wrangell Institute was a temporary landing spot, a holding area, while the people in charge found a more suitable site. After about two weeks, Gert and her family were on the move again.
2: They decided to move us to this abandoned cannery, a little place called Burnett Inlet.
1: That cannery had belonged to a salmon packing company. It was abandoned because it had caught on fire two years earlier.
2: I think they had about 10, 15 old cannery houses. They were falling down. The first night we stayed there, about 15 of us kids slept on the floor, and we could see the stars through the roof.
1: Burnett Inlet was not a more suitable site. There was no electricity or plumbing. There also wasn't a hospital or a church. Within a few days everyone's skin was covered with boils. Wolves howled all night. That burned out cannery was one of six relocation camps in Southeast Alaska. None of them were fit for human habitation. They were cold and wet, and there was never enough food. At one site, the drinking water was reddish brown. There might be a whole family packed into one
4: room and there was very few sanitary facilities. I know the most about Ward Lake. Apparently there was just one toilet for the whole community, and it was like a long trough-like
1: latrine. Disease was rampant. Pneumonia, tuberculosis, and anything else that would spread in close quarters.
2: We got the red measles, and it was really bad. There was this little room that was for one person. And there were six of us Unungan girls in there with the measles for a long time. I think probably several weeks
1: that we were sick. Gert's mother was a midwife. At Burnett Inlet, she did her best to tend to the sick. But there was only so much she could do without a doctor or nurse on site. At one of the camps, 24 people died in a calendar year a death rate three times what it should have been. The Unungans refused to accept any of this. Women wrote a petition demanding they be sent to a better place. An administrator admonished them for complaining. He said that under war conditions, they could not expect to enjoy the comforts of home. The Unungan people weren't supposed to be prisoners. They'd been evacuated for their own protection But the Unungans didn't feel like they'd been rescued. This was something different, internment. And it wasn't just happening to them.
0: When the
2: Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. In
1: 1942, it was government policy that anyone with Japanese ancestry was considered untrustworthy. That was the official reason they got sent to internment camps, supposedly to safeguard American democracy. But white farmers also pushed for internment. It was a policy that benefited them economically, allowing them to buy up their Japanese neighbor's land for pennies on the dollar. The Unungan evacuation was also a convenient way to remove a population that some residents didn't want to have around.
2: At one time, I heard someone down the street saying, and don't you go play with those dirty little Aleuts.
1: The white principal of Gert's school described Unungan women as exotic and immoral, making them a menace to soldiers. A military official said after the bombing of Dutch Harbor that it was time to clean out the entire town. And so... The Unungans and Gertz community got sent to an abandoned cannery. And when they asked for a better place, they were told they didn't deserve one.
2: Sometimes it was so hard. Uh, but they were, you know, they were, I think that the Unungan people from Unalaska were very, very resilient. Our people just got together and started building, organizing arrange for certain people to cook, certain people to get wood, repair the houses, fix the roofs.
1: The Unungans built a school and a church. They also built Gert's mother a house. In gratitude for her tending to the sick, it was the first new house at Burnett Inlet, uninsulated, with one bedroom and an outhouse. Gert turned 13 a few months after the evacuation. She went back to the Wrangell Institute, the boarding school for Native Alaskans. That's where she caught the red measles and got crammed into a room with six other sick children. But she also made friends and went to school dances.
2: We were having a good time, mostly. (laughs) I do remember always being protected so well by all the elders of the village. They just all kind of watched over the children and made sure that we weren't anxious about things, like they were taking all the worry. Just let us be kids while we were struggling along.
1: But even with the adults taking all the worry, the days didn't pass quickly. Gert and the other Unungans were stuck in that Alaskan forest with the trees and the wolves. It was 1943, and there was no end in sight.
2: They never informed us about anything, but it was certainly always on our mind that we wanted to come
1: back. What were the things that you missed about home?
2: Probably the food, <laughs> yeah, our food, you know, we missed the fish and clams and I think we missed Alaska. We were hoping the war would be over all the time. We girls would get together and we'd see our first star and, and make a wish, and the wish was to go
1: home. <laughs> We'll be back in a minute.
3: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So... If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens
3: say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: The Unungan people of the Aleutian Islands were being terrorized by their own government, ripped from their homes, and banished to squalid camps. Meanwhile the people of Attu were getting subjected to a different kind of suffering. Attu was the remote island that the Japanese army had invaded in June 1942. The residents were taken hostage. And it got worse from there. All of the surviving Atuans would get loaded onto a ship and taken to Japan as prisoners of war. One would die on the journey and get buried at sea. The remaining 40 would be held until the end of the war with little food or medicine. 16 of them would die in Japan of starvation and disease. In 1942, the Japanese controlled two pieces of U.S. territory, Attu and the small island of Kiska. The Allies decided they needed to strike back. If they didn't, more American land and lives could be at risk.
0: For well, the Japanese had not
2: only bombed Dutch Harbor, their troops were now entrenched on the outermost Aleutian Islands, Atu and Kiska, a foothold menacing the continent itself.
1: In August of 42, the Allies opened an airbase in the Aleutians and started bombing Japanese positions. It was the first extensive aerial bombing campaign ever conducted by U.S. forces. One American fighter pilot called it the weirdest war ever waged. A three-way fight between the United States, the Japanese, and the horrid Aleutian weather. Sweating it out for hour after blind hour of continuous flight at home without benefit of directional beam to land on unlighted runways, refueled, and take off into gray, blind hell. The cold and wind didn't just wreak havoc in the air. In May 1943, 15,000 U.S. ground troops faced those brutal conditions when they embarked on a mission to retake Attu.
4: The problem of supplying an expedition to take this vital subarctic outpost is tremendous. But the Americans are well trained for landings such
1: as this, and they're bringing everything they'll need to hold Attu against any future attack. It was World War II's only ground battle in the United States, and it was a catastrophe for everyone. By one measure, it was the deadliest fight in the entire Pacific outside of Iwo Jima. Poorly equipped American soldiers got stricken with frostbite and trench foot. Outnumbered Japanese forces charged at them in a suicide attack. Just 28 of the Japanese soldiers survived, while more than 2,300 were buried in mass graves. Atu was back under American control. And a few months later, So was the island of Kiska. By August 1943, it was all over. The Japanese military was gone from the Aleutian Islands. Now that Alaska was no longer under threat, there was no reason to keep the Unungans away from their villages. But even when the fighting was done, many of them were not allowed to return to their homes. The
4: decision was made that some of the villages would not be repopulated the cultural anthropologist rachel mason again i think the government made a decision that it was just too much trouble to bring people back to their communities when they were so remote and
1: it would be so expensive to resettle them there when attu's 20-plus surviving prisoners of war got back from japan they were forbidden from returning to their island Placing them in a more easily accessible village would save money. So that's what the government decided to do. When the Unungans had been told to leave the Aleutians, they'd been given as little as an hour's notice. But their return to the islands took forever. Government officials dithered and delayed, worrying about whether there'd be enough housing and who would pay for supplies. They also got word that some white residents didn't want their Unungan neighbors to ever come back. And so Gert Savarni, her mother, and her siblings waited in southeast Alaska for almost two more years. It wasn't until April 1945 when Gert finally got the news she'd been wishing for.
2: We couldn't believe that we were going to be able to leave. Everybody was excited, everybody was packing. We packed all our stuff and we had a great big dance. What a joyous time we had.
1: On April 16th, 135 Alaskans boarded an Army troop ship. It had been going on three years since Gert had seen her father wave goodbye from the shore. Five days later, they made landfall.
2: And in the morning, they uh, put us on trucks, us kids on the back of trucks, and stopped at the top of the hill there. And we got to look up over the town, got to see the church.
1: That must have felt pretty great.
2: Yeah, it was, it was wonderful.
1: When the Unalaskans got back to their homes, those feelings of elation turned into something else. The houses were still there, but there was a lot of
4: damage. People had been in them and looted their homes in some cases.
1: And that was members of the U.S. military had done that?
4: Yes, that was the only
1: ones who could have done it,
4: really.
2: They ransacked the houses. I always remember my friend Sarah was hoping to find her a puppet. (laughs) that she was just anxious to get. Of course, it was gone. They were just wrecks. They broke the windows and, you know, they just took whatever
1: they could. Gert's family was relatively lucky. Her father had been able to stay behind because he was a white essential worker and he protected his family's property. But other Runungans found their furniture, clothing, books, and religious icons had all been plundered. There were also burn pits where Unungan's belongings had been incinerated, and the island's landscapes were littered with trash. Gert's community needed time to clean up and rebuild. But in April 1945, World War II still wasn't quite over. And in Unalaska, the military men were still acting like they owned the place.
2: They still had barbed wire f- fence up all over. We could not go out in the hills. We just had to stay right in town here. And that went on for quite a while.
1: When the war finally ended, the military's presence in the Aleutians gradually dwindled. But the devastation of the World War II years would linger. The separated families, the ancient villages that had to be abandoned, the ransacked houses and property, the deaths of an estimated 10% of the Unungans who evacuated, and the profound cultural losses that can be tied directly to the evacuation. The language, Unangam Tunu, before the war,
4: those languages were spoken by a lot of people. In the case of Attu, most of the people only spoke Unangam Tunu. I think the war led to a loss of the language and it hastened the loss of a lot of Unangak traditions.
1: The Unungans felt immense trauma during and after the war. Some became ashamed of their native heritage. Most just tried to forget what happened. Gert got married in 1950 to a World War II veteran from Wisconsin. They had four daughters, and she began to understand more deeply what her own mother had gone through during the evacuation but Gert never talked publicly about what she'd survived during the war. That changed in the early 1980s. Thanks to years of activism by Japanese-Americans, the U.S. government created a federal commission on World War II internment. That commission held a series of public hearings, most of them about the Japanese experience. But they also went to unalaska, And Gert Savarni decided she was ready to talk.
2: Yes, I did give testimony on that when they asked me to. Yeah. Dredged up a lots of memories.
1: Gert told the commission about her experience at Wrangell Institute, the boarding school for Native Alaskans. She said that she was constantly hungry and that her education suffered because no one was qualified to teach. She talked about coming down with rheumatic fever and crying out because her legs were in so much pain.
2: And I was in the hospital a month and a half. I went from 112 down to 96 pounds.
1: (laughs) A year and a half after Gert testified, the commission released its report. It said that Japanese internment was the result of race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. The report also included a section on the Unungans. It said their evacuation had a rational basis. But there was no justification for how they were treated it also acknowledged the looting of unungans homes by the u.s military and the lack of urgency in getting them back home in 1988 ronald reagan would sign a bill that included a formal apology to japanese internees that legislation mentioned the unungans too i'd like to note that the bill i'm about to sign also provides funds for members of the Aleut community who were evacuated from the Aleutian and Pribilof Islands after a Japanese attack in 1942. But the government didn't quite say it was sorry. This action was taken for the Aleut's own protection, but property was lost or damaged that has never been replaced. And now in closing... The bill did give the Unungans some compensation for that lost or damaged property.
2: They decided to give us $12,000, and that was it. They figured that was what it was all worth, I guess.
1: Did you feel like that was fair?
2: Oh, of course. Of course, it it was not fair.
1: (laughs) The government finally issued a formal apology in 2017. But at 92 years old, Gert tries to look forward. She's a working artist, upholding Unungan tradition by working with Whalebone and Bentwood. And she remains resolutely self-sufficient.
2: I mow my own lawn. I go berry picking. I've taught my children how to cure fish, smoke fish, take care of fish. And so we all get together and do that in the summer.
1: I asked her what she hoped people might learn from her story.
2: I think that people should know about it, for one thing. And and so many people have never even heard of it.
1: Back in 1981, That federal commission had asked Gert what the government could do to try to make amends. Her answer? Make sure that it never happens again to anyone. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate+. Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to One Year and every other Slate podcast ad-free. And you'll get a special behind-the-scenes episode with me and senior producer Evan Chung at the end of our season, explaining how we made these episodes about 1942. Go to slate.com slash oneyearplus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash oneyearplus. Next time, on the season finale of One Year 1942, Black Americans in East St. Louis drill for war, awaiting a Japanese invasion. But whose side are they on? If the
4: country's about to be invaded, you're oppressed and persecuted.
1: Well, of course, you want to be part of the new order. Can't be that much worse than the old order. One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Sophie Summergrad, Evan Chung, Sol Worthen, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1942. At oneyear at slate.com. You can call us on the one year hotline at 203 343 0777. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you to Dmitry Filimanov, Sharon Savarni Livingston, Lauren Adams, Ray Hudson, Millie Jackson, Virginia Hatfield, and Okolina Patricia Lakanov Gregory. Special thanks to Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, Alexandra Settlemyer, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the season finale of One Year, 1942. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
3: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So. First, it was Dade County.
2: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
3: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
1: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
4: Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all.